0: My wife and I recently had the chance to go to Italy. Our son is stationed over there and we were able to take a trip over there and you know, you go to Italy and you see all kind of ancient buildings and churches and you know, I go to two or three cathedrals or churches and I feel like, okay, I've seen a lot of what's in these. And one of the things that's in a lot of these uh, buildings, these, these cathedrals and churches are incredibly ornate ceilings painted with frescoes, that reflect various uh, parts of God's word revealed in the Bible. And one of the Renaissance artists, uh, Michelangelo's most famous works, is found on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. We did not go there. We did not get to see it. But uh, you're probably familiar with it. The amazing collection of paintings there, which depicts various aspects of the biblical story, are filled with, with vivid imagery. And anytime you're looking at any of these frescoes, you're just it's almost overwhelming. Because you feel like there's so many things in there that you, you want to see. And you, 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 you want to uh, understand what the artist was, was thinking behind that. <clears throat> But one of those details in the most famous of these frescoes of Michelangelo's at the center of the Sistine Chapel is one you've probably seen renditions of. It's the, the creation, it's God at creation with Adam. And it, it pictures God's creation of man where God is, is kind of reaching out and his finger is about to, to touch the finger of Adam who he has created. And in this painting, God is surrounded as many of these uh, Uh, frescoes do surrounded by angels and cherubs and and all kinds of different people there and standing out from this group in this particular painting is a woman around whom God has his arm and she is looking on in kind of wonder and delight and many believe this to be a portrayal of wisdom Who in the early chapters of Proverbs is personified as a woman. And here in Proverbs chapter 8 is personified as being present and active with God in his work of creation. Delighting in his work. And as we come to the end of our our series in in Proverbs. Where we've been looking at the practical truths and principles for living a, a godly wise life. It would be very easy for us to walk away from this study just thinking of wisdom as just that practical principles it's practical principles from a book and that is part of what it is God has given us that we have looked at the pathway of wisdom for dealing with with difficult situations with a a heavy heart with making wise choices we've learned wise principles for friendships for for work for money for uh, controlling our our tongue and our anger But we've also seen that wisdom is more than just following good, sound principles for wise living. Wisdom doesn't just flow from a book, but ultimately it is embodied in a person. And it flows from a relationship with God who is the wellspring of wisdom. As I said to the kids, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, and we could say the middle, and the end of wisdom And it involves relationship, it involves discernment and insight and understanding of how to live rightly with God and with one another in the midst of life's varied situations and decisions according to what is true. And so throughout these early chapters of Proverbs, as we saw, wisdom is portrayed as someone to listen to, someone to learn from, someone to trust in, someone to seek out. And as we've seen... In the New Testament, this portrait of wisdom comes to, comes to real life in the person of Jesus Christ, God's Son, who, who Paul tells us is for us wisdom from God. So what I'd like to do today in kind of winding up our study and as we prepare to come to the table um, is, is simply to remind us of this, this connection between the the portrait, the portrayal of wisdom that we see in Proverbs from Solomon and the the person who is wisdom in Jesus Christ. But true wisdom comes not in, because true wisdom comes not just in reading words set down on a page or seeing some some personification of it, but true wisdom comes to real life in the person of Jesus Christ who is wisdom. Wisdom. Now, I do want to note here that what we're reading in Proverbs is not necessarily prophetic language per se, like we might see in Isaiah or Daniel. Solomon did not necessarily have in mind when he was writing this a direct link between Lady Wisdom and the promised Messiah. And we have to be careful that we don't read too much into that as we go through uh, the scriptures. However, he is using poetic, artistic language much like Michelangelo does with his brushes and paints to create a portrayal of the, of, of the qualities of wisdom. And what we find in the writings of the New Testament is these qualities of wisdom are, are not just artistically portrayed in words or colors. But actually come to life in the living flesh of Jesus Christ. And so we can, we can look back at proverbs and at passages like we're looking at this morning, we can look back through the prism of what we we now know is real and true, and see how clearly and how amazingly a- accurate is the portrayal that uh, Solomon is painting here. So, what are the what are the qualities of wisdom seen in Proverbs chapter eight that are also embodied in the person of Christ? And we're gonna we're gonna walk through these fairly quickly. First, God's wisdom is relational. God's wisdom is relational. Wisdom, again, is portrayed here as a person that is both possessed by God. You see that in verse 22 of chapter 8. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work and is also present with God before the beginning of creation we see that in verse 30 what we see here is a this unique relationship that is portrayed wisdom is an essential attribute of who god is his character and his nature god is all wise god possesses wisdom like the atmosphere possesses air And yet wisdom is brought forth before all of creation, given form and function, portrayed as standing there beside and in relationship to God, like a master workman at creation. And Paul, in the letter that Matt read for us in Colossians, reminds us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and the writer of Hebrews agrees with that, saying in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the God, glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word and by his power. Like wisdom, as, as, as she's portrayed in this passage, Jesus is the very nature, the very character of God. And yet, he is a distinct personality. He's given form and function. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And just as wisdom was, was not created, there wasn't a time when God did not possess wisdom He was brought, she was brought forth, the wisdom was brought forth. Likewise, as we said in the Nicene Creed earlier, Jesus is the only son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. And so we see this unique divine relationship of the Trinity. God is is personal and he he is relational in and of himself. And so wisdom is, is rooted in this sense of, of relationship and, and personality. Well, what difference does that make to us? Well, as we seek truth and we seek wisdom for life, again, we're not just seeking some esoteric philosophy. We're not, we're not just looking for, for some transcendent theory or formula that, that kind of explains and defines everything. We are seeking a person, <laughs> We are seeking someone whom we can know and who we can understand and who we can relate to. When we want wisdom, when you want wisdom for something, and you uh, and you need to go find uh, someone who can give you that wisdom, who do you go to? You go to someone who's an expert <laughs> in it. The 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 uh, you know if you're if you're looking for how to fix your your clothes dryer, you don't Google you know fashion consultants <laughs> you go for an appliance expert well jesus god jesus is the supreme expert on everything god has posted all his wisdom for life in the person of his son jesus christ who became like us that we might know and understand and relate to god in a way in the way that we were created to so wisdom is first and foremost Rooted in, in relationship with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. A second quality of wisdom is that wisdom is eternal. As I said, there was never a time when wisdom wasn't. The Lord possessed wisdom at the beginning of his, his work. Before anything was, wisdom existed. And God's wisdom precedes everything because God precedes everything. And likewise, Jesus is eternal. John reminds us in the very first verses of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Colossians 1, which we read, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Revelation tells us he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus himself said, when talking to the Pharisees, Before Abraham was, I am. I was, I existed there was never a time when Jesus wasn't and there was, will never be a time when Jesus isn't the Lord over all things. And so our knowledge and our understanding you know, in this world is very limited, isn't it? It's very, it's very finite. If you think about it, we have such a, a, a very limited scope of experience, each of us individually and even together. We have a very limited ability to grasp the, the big picture of uh, uh, that we know that we know is there we live most of our lives in a in a limited number of locations in this vast globe and our earth is is just a little speck in the vast universe our lifespan is just a a dot on the on the uh, timeline of history and eternity we live in in such a limited and perspective in a in a little world and so much of what is going on even right around us and its effect on us is unknown to us. And that's often why we have so many questions about, you know, what's going on? What is God doing? Why is this, you know, what what what's happening in the world and in our lives? Because we can't see the big picture. When Job questioned God about all the things that were happening in his life, God's response was, "Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Were you there?" God's not being, he's not being mean to Job. He's just raising the issue. He's like, do do you have the big picture here? Can you see everything? And the answer is obviously no. But guess what? Jesus was there. (laughs) Jesus was there. He's been around for eternity and, and he has a big picture perspective. John the Baptist said of Jesus, he who comes from above is above all. He who is on the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is over all. And he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Think about what Jesus has seen and heard <laughs> as God. And he comes and he bears witness. He gives, gives us wisdom to in that. And so you want to know God's perspective on things. Jesus is the one who has it. And Jesus is the one for us to go to. He's been there and done that, so to speak. He knows all things. And this eternal nature of Jesus also means that the, the truth we seek and the truth he reveals and the wisdom that God has given to us through him are, are utterly reliable. They do not change. It is, it is unchanging and everlasting. It's not the, the, the root truth is not bound by by changing times or different cultures or shifting situations. Now how we act in those changing times and how we live in those different cultures. And how we move and, and respond in those different uh, situations is a matter of, of, of how, how we live that wisdom out. But Jesus' knowledge and wisdom and power are from everlasting to everlasting. They are eternal. He is eternal. And so wisdom is relational and wisdom is eternal. And a third quality of wisdom is it is powerful. Wisdom is powerful. Wisdom is portrayed as not only present, but being active in God's amazing work of creation. Look at what it says in verse 27. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a a circle on the face of the deep. You get this picture of creation. God's just, you know, he's up there like with just, he's, he's, the ocean's going to go right here, <laughs> you know, and, and this is where the, the, the beach is going to stop the ocean from going. And it says, he, when he made firm the skies above and established the foundations of the deep and assigned the seas to its limits so that the waters might not transgress his commands. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, there I was beside him like a master workman. As we live in this world, I don't know about you, but I just am constantly in awe of God's creation and his creativity. As you look at the natural world that he's created, you just have to be amazed at, at all that, that went into <laughs> creating what God has created. The amazing diversity of the environment. The world of plants and animals. The, the interaction of, of those of us who are, are created in his image and you see how things are so intricately and perfectly designed for their environment and for their purpose. I came home from a walk uh, the other morning and as I was walking by you know, it was humid and, and everything else and I noticed this spider that was about this big and he's suspended in the middle of my yard. <laughs> I mean there's not a tree or a bush within about eight feet of this spider and I'm like How in the world? And I walk up, and then, you know, you can begin to see the web. And I'm I'm trying to figure out where is this thing suspended from. And I look up, and way up in this tree limb, there's this long, thin string that comes down here. And then way over in this bush, there's another long, thin piece. And then one that goes to the ground. And then from that is just this amazing web that is going to stop a fly or a, a moth that comes flying into it. If you think about that, almost all of what we see in nature, man has just, all the things we've done is just a, a mimicking of God's creativity in nature. We can build bridges because God created spiders that, that can weave webs. We didn't invent sonar. It came from whales and bats and, and things like that. And so we see this incredible uh, creativity and power of God's wisdom revealed all around us. And guess who the architect of all this creativity is? John reminds us again in the beginning of the gospel about Jesus. All things were made through him. Without him was nothing made that was made. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. And he upholds it by the power of his word. You see, Jesus was not there as a spectator in creation. He was intricately involved. He was, a, he was one, the master builder. And God created the world by the wisdom of his word. And Jesus is that word of wisdom by which he created all things. So when you sit and when you wonder, who in the world can understand my situation? Who in the world has, has the ability to, 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 to fix this or to deal with this? Jesus comes... And you remember what he says. Look at the birds of the air. Nobody feeds them. I feed them. Look at the, look at the lilies and how beautiful, the lilies of the field and how beautiful they're clothed. Do you think if I'm doing this for all of creation that I am not, my father will not do this and care for you who are so much more valuable than they are if I can control the flow of the ocean tides with the gravitational pull of the moon so that as our world spins around at over a, you know thousands of miles an hour you're not your house isn't inundated by the ocean twice a day if I can do that you don't think I can take care of you in the midst of this God, in his wisdom, is weaving all things together in a beautiful creative tapestry of good for his children. And Jesus is the all knowing, the all powerful, the all creative wisdom of God. And he comes down, he humbles himself so that we can see him, so that we can know him. And he makes those promises to us. So, wisdom's relational, eternal, powerful. And then God's wisdom is also delightful. A fourth quality of wisdom is it is delightful. Verse 30 through 31 says, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. I think most of us here, when we think of wisdom, like if you had to paint a picture of wisdom, what would you paint it? I think I would think of this kind of this old, purse-lipped, furrow-browed, you know, dour, solemn, professor-like person. You know, he's up there, he's the wise one. <laughs> um, and yet what we see here in this picture is there's joy there is delight there is frivolity in some ways of just looking at at the creation of the world and 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 and, and rejoicing in its goodness celebrating with the with the creation and with the sons of man there's this sense of satisfaction, of pleasure, of deep love and acceptance at work here. And of course we see that in, at, the, at the creation account when God finishes everything and he says, he sits back and he rests. It doesn't mean he was tired. He sits back and he's, he sits down and is satisfied. It is very, very good. He's delighting in his creation. And this is exactly what we see played out in, in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus Delighted to do the Father's will. The Father delighted and was pleased in the work of his Son. There was this divine pleasure in the calling and the work of God, both in creation as well as in redemption. God looked upon all that he made, especially mankind, and he said, this is very good. And then when man rebelled, when man turned his back on God and and rebelled against his authority and fell into sin... God immediately promises to send a redeemer. He immediately promises to to work this out. Doesn't necessarily say how, but he says one is going to come and he will defeat sin and Satan. And out of a deep love for the Father and for you and me, Jesus takes pleasure in doing God's will. In coming as our redeemer and offering himself up on the cross for our sins. There was joy and delight in Jesus that undergirded his ministry, even in the face of the most extreme trials, suffering, persecution, and death. This is remarkable, considering that Jesus knew what lay before him. (laughs) He knew what was coming. Our sin would necessitate his death, and what a brutal death it would be, and yet he loves you and he loves me so much that he was not just willing, but he entered into it. And the Bible tells us that, that uh, he took pleasure in rescuing us from our plight at the expense of his own life. Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, that of, of pleasing God, his father, and that of redeeming man as a people for himself, Jesus endures the shame of the cross. His motivation was not begrudging duty, but it was blessed delight. He longed to please his father, and his father loved to take pleasure in his son. Now, that doesn't mean he delighted in the experience. It doesn't mean that he didn't want to, to, to as, as a man, he, he even said, can you remove this cup from me? But I delight to do the will of my father. And so, Father, not my will, but your will. Be done. Matthew Henry says of this in his commentary Though Jesus foresaw all the difficulties he was to meet with in his work, the services, and the sufferings he was to go through, yet, because it would issue in the glory of his Father and the salvation of those sons of men that were given to him, Jesus looked forward upon it with the greatest satisfaction imaginable. In which we also have all the encouragement that we can desire to come to him and rely upon him for all the benefits designed us by his glorious undertaking. Jesus delighted to do God's will and we can delight to come to him and receive the benefits of that. And likewise, because Jesus has redeemed us, we can in God's wisdom, as Paul says, we can actually rejoice in our sufferings and in our trials Not because we like going through them, but we know it is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us in Christ. And because of Christ's glorious undertaking on the cross, God the Father also delights and rejoices in you. You are his child. Have you ever just enjoyed being around someone? You are, you are eager to get together with them. You look forward to times you might be able to spend together. You're always interested in hearing what they have to say. You like to share what's going on with the, that other person. You delight in that relationship. And that is what God thinks of you and me because of his delight in Jesus. So wisdom is relational, it's eternal, it's powerful, it's delightful. And lastly, God's wisdom is life. It is life. The last quality of wisdom seen here is life. Listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear my instruction and be wise. Watch daily at my gates. Wait beside my door. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. Who can say that? (laughs) Only Jesus. Proverbs offers us a choice. Get wisdom and get life. Turn from wisdom, find death. And when we come to the gospel, Jesus makes it very clear. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets wisdom (laughs) but by me. In him was life and the life was the light of men, John tells us. The gospel presents us with this same choice. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whoever finds him, whoever trusts in him should not perish but will have everlasting life. Friends, the deepest longings in our hearts is the longing for life. It's the longing for for true life, not just as I said to the kids, not just, not just that we uh, breathe air and we can walk around, but it's, it's living and, and, and experiencing life as it was meant to be. We long to know and to be known. We long to love and to be loved. We desire to have the, the favor of God upon us, to know that we are accepted, to know that we are secure in him. We want life. And where does that come from? We seek it in all kinds of different places. In all the things that we've looked at in Proverbs, those are, those are places we come to and we seek life. In our possessions, in our, in our uh, position, in, our, uh, in, in how we uh, in, in involve in our friendships, our relationships. And none of those things is, is bad in and of itself, but they don't provide life. They're part of the life that only Jesus provides. Paul reminds us, In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by his blood on the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You who had, had turned away from wisdom and, were, and was pursuing the, the way of destruction and death. He has now reconciled in his body, in his body of flesh, by his own death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, the pathway to life comes through Jesus' death. His sacrifice of love for you and me on the cross delivers us from the folly of sin and death and purchases for us the gift of life. And only when we find Jesus do we find life, true life. Only when we trust in his great work of wisdom and grace on the cross, when we heed his instructions of wisdom in his word, can we find and live life as we were intended to have it and to live it? Can we know, only then can we know the favor of God and find our delight in him? If we leave our summer in the school of wisdom, our study of Proverbs, simply having learned lots of good sound principles for, for all the things that we encounter in life, but not having found and not having known and not having embraced and pursuing the person who embodies true wisdom in life, then we failed the course miserably. Which leads to the last point here a point which Tony Clark preached wonderfully earlier in this series. But in chapter 9, this next chapter, wisdom is portrayed as as having built her house and having prepared her feast. And she goes out and she says to all who will hear in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Wisdom has prepared a feast. She has done the work, and she invites us to come and dine with her and live. Folly's feast, by contrast, is is made of stolen water and bread, eaten in secret, and the result of residing there is death. And friends, Jesus invites you, he invites me, he invites us into fellowship with him. And this fellowship is portrayed in this this invitation to come and to feast on what he has prepared for us. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. When he dined with his disciples at the final Passover meal before his death, he said to them, this bread which I give to you is my body. This this wine is the new covenant of my blood which will be poured out for you. And Jesus invited them and he invites you and me to a feast of which he himself, the benefits and the blessings of his wisdom and his work is is the meal. It is the appetizer and the main course and the dessert all in one. And he calls us to, to feast upon him to take him in by faith through these these earthly elements that represent his body and blood such that we might might know anew and afresh and experience the the nourishment of the forgiveness we have for our sins. That we might be freed from our bondage to sin and death and we might live according to his word and his wisdom. That we might have our eyes open to see God's wisdom plainly reflected in the person of Jesus and to to live for him. Jesus invites you and me, not just to dine with him, but to dine on him. (laughs) Meaning to find in him and in his sacrifice on the cross And on all the benefits and the blessings and the promises that those things secure for us. To find their sustenance and nourishment and satisfaction and hope and and comfort and strength and life for our souls. You won't find it anywhere else. All other spiritual food, all other things we try to, to, to find our deep heartfelt desires fulfilled in is just stolen water. <laughs> so as we come to the table here this morning, we're coming to the feast of grace which Jesus has prepared for us. It's his sacrament and he has promised his presence with us and his grace to us as we partake of this meal. And it's here that we find ourselves in communion with God, in relationship with the one who is eternal, who is powerful, who is is delightful, and who offers life through his death and his resurrection. So brothers and sisters, if you would find life, if you would obtain favor from God, then come to Jesus and feast upon his grace By faith, put your trust and hope in him and in him alone, no matter what your circumstance or situation. For Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God for you and me, and he is life. Let us pray together. Father, meet us here Lord Jesus, in this sacrament which you have prepared for us, which you have called us to partake of regularly, that we might know the benefits and the blessings and participate in the life that you have secured for us through your death and resurrection. And Lord, as we seek wisdom in this world, and we need it badly. We need it for all the decisions we make, for the situations we find ourselves in, for the things we see happening around us, for the the depths of our heart and the longings we have. We need your wisdom. Lord, would you show us and teach us that through your son, Jesus Christ? Would you give us insight into that through his word and through His work for us on the cross. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.